That's a lovely color on you, Frank. That t-shirt you're wearing for our listeners, it's, what, what would you call that? A robin's egg blue, or is it deeper than that? It's, well, it's a little bit brighter than that, I guess. It's I'll say. More, <laughs> it's more of a turquoise, maybe... I liked it, so yeah, I bought it. Yeah, it doesn't have a lot of green to it. It looks great on you. Yeah, thanks. I, I so wish we were doing this on TV. <laughs> well, you know, we can take a picture that, afterwards and post it. That's our it, next so. step. Yeah, there you go. Booth 1 TV. <laughs> HD. I'm not, all right, I'm going to stop all of that now. It's Booth 1 on your podcast dial, everyone. Gary Zabinski along with Frank Taranjo, your hosts on this scorchingly hot day it in is. Chicago. Yeah, yes. Hoo-wee. Mm-hmm. Thank God for air conditioning. And we have the perfect guest with us today. Mm-hmm. So pleased to have joining us in the booth today as a marvelous actress and a very talented stage director, the lovely and talented Cecilia Wingate. Hi, Cecilia. Hi Welcome. There. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. You've come all the way from another hot place, Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah, I've come from Memphis, where it is like walking through hell every day. <laughs> <laughs> In the summer. In, in the, the summer. summer. Yeah. I was so happy to get out of that heat and get here. And then it's Bam. been gorgeous. And then two days ago, it was like, yeah, ah, I mean, You can barely dumb. breathe out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah. know. I'm going to digress a little bit before we get to you, Cecilia, but I want to hear all about you and all about your upbringing and where you live now and what you're doing down in Memphis. But Frank, you recently had a short trip to New York City in keeping with your stellar reputation as a world traveler yeah. you're always somewhere <laughs> I am. Uh, where you saw how many shows we saw f- seven shows in four days you must be exhausted well you're sitting a lot when you're watching <laughs> shows so it's not that bad but I guess uh, so and then we went from there to philadelphia to visit some friends and then came back all right let's chat about these just briefly list the seven shows that you saw and i'll pick one that i want to hear about well, I can tell you what each one was about, and then you can hear. Yeah, we. I saw Head Over Heels, which is the Go Go's musical. Got it. And then I, I saw. Hear about that. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then Once on This Island, which won the winner Tony of for the best, uh, best play, best uh, musical revival, revival this year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Straight White Men with uh-huh. Arnie Hammer. Then we saw Train Spotting, a live version of the of the movie Train Spotting. <laughs> yes. And then we saw Skin Tight, which is a straight play with Adina Menzel. And then we saw Boys in the Band with all the major gay stars yes. in Hollywood or whatever. And then an off-Broadway show called Desperate Measures, which was actually my favorite of the whole group. Desperate Measures. Yeah, Desperate Measures is kind of a, a cowboy musical based on Measure for Measure, Shakespeare's yeah. show about mistaken identities and you know fooling people. And it was so hilarious and so charming and so absurd. I thought it was absolutely wonderful. Where is it playing? It is playing at uh, Stages which is mm-hmm. on uh, mm-hmm. Ford 50th and... 50th and 9th, 8th yeah. and... Between 8th and 9th, yeah, yeah, really nice space. It used to be a movie theater, mm-hmm. and they've divided them all up into mm-hmm. into legit theaters. But it was so funny, and it was just so creative. I just thought it was terrific. I was reading a little bit about train spotting. Uh-huh. The play. The play. Uh, and I can't believe that it's been mounted on stage after knowing the film. But the warnings in the lobby, I hear, are (laughs) worth the price of admission. Not only the usual, there's strobe lights, there's... Swearing. Language, uh, possible nudity, some sort of sexual situations. But Mm -hmm. there's also things like splatter. Splatter, yes. Things get tossed around. Scottish accents. Right. (laughs) That's that's a warning. Yeah. If you know train spotting, uh, first of all, it's a very small theater. There are two rows on each side, and they perform in the middle. But there's the famous uh, toilet scene where he crams some drugs up his butt and then has to go to the bathroom, and he goes to the worst toilet in Scotland, which is how they describe it. And then he realizes, he just pooped out the drugs. So in the movie, he like dives in, and there's this whole sort of underwater yeah, fantasy yeah. kind of sequence. The, the way they did it there, they had this really gross toilet there, and he was digging around in it and throwing things at people that he was digging out of the toilet. <laughs> oh, so that's, that's where some of the splatter came in. They don't have they don't have that kind of thing in Memphis, <laughs> no, do they? Nasty. They may. <laughs> it wasn't real. I'm guessing. I came uh-huh. away unscathed. I didn't get hit by anything, but yeah. some other people did. Oh, lots of people did. People. Were they did, laughing yeah. when they got splattered? Um, were people they... mostly laughed, yeah. You're going to train spotting, you, and it says splatter as part of a warning. You can't be like, oh my God, how could that happen? Yeah. You yeah. Know, you're you're going to see what you're, yeah. you know, you're going to get. The one I was most disappointed in, I think, was Once on this Island. I don't know if any of you have seen it. We had great seats. We were like at about the fifth row right on the aisle in the center, and it's theater in the round. It's circle in the square, so it's completely in the round. But they had such heavy Caribbean accents, and I'm really good with listening to accents, at one point, 
I leaned over to Dan, who I was with, and I said, I have no idea what she just said. There are these gods who are like taking over and guiding these people. Sure. And she had a kind of a big, long monologue, didn't get a word of it. Uh, you know, so I, th- so I mean, I could figure out what was going on, but you really had to work at it. And after a while, I was like, okay, I'll just like sort of watch. And then I thought the ending was not sense. I thought the ending was ridiculous. I actually burst out laughing at the ending. Really? And it's really kind of a oh. sensitive, beautiful moment. I remember seeing this musical originally in ah. the 80s and loving it. I didn't go expecting to like it. Okay. But I came away absolutely enthralled by the entire experience, immediately bought the cast album, just loved it from beginning to end. I have not seen the Circle in the Square version. It's a fabulous production. Yeah. It's beautifully mounted, and, and the performances are great. But if you can't understand what's going on, what is, I mean, should I say what the ending is? I thought it was ridiculous. Sure, why not? Well, it's about this girl who was in love with this young man, and she follows him, but because of their differences in culture, he marries somebody else, so she becomes a tree. Right. And takes care of him that way. I'm right. Like, and I laugh. They go, oh, look, she's now a tree. <laughs> she's a what? She's a tree. Well, so for the rest you... of the trip, I'm like, I think I'll be a tree now. It's sort of a myth. It's yeah. a it's fairy tale. Yeah. And of course, I hate fantasy. You know that. I, I yes, yeah. So, I know. <laughs> you know, if you're going to become trees, don't, don't come around me. Boys in the Band was wonderful. Jim yeah. Parr, I don't watch Big Bang Theory, so I don't really know him. And he was phenomenal. What was interesting about Boys in the Band was people have criticized it saying it's like 1967 gay and is it out of date? Well, first of all, they do it period. So you're looking at something from that period. But secondly, because when the, the play came out, it was like, oh, this is a gay play. And the whole gay thing was like so yeah. significant. The gayness is not as important right now, even though all the characters are gay men. It's the relationships. And those kind of relationships, I think, translate to any kind of relationships. And so you're not all in awe of the fact that it's gay or disturbed by the fact that it's gay. It's like, look what these people are doing with each other. And I recognize women and straight men and all that kind of stuff well, in the characters. It's, it's, so it worked why, for me. That's why it's still a relevant play. It is. It really is. I felt the message was kind of updated. And that's the one that has all the stars? All the big stars? The big stars, big stars. yeah. Zachary Quinto and Jim Parsons and Matt Bomer and Anthony Reynolds and a lot of really, really good people. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you loved it because years ago, the only show I've ever walked out of Okay, two in New York. (laughs) One was that remount of a chorus line that nobody needs to talk about. But the first was that championship season. Mm. And it had all these big stars like Chris Noth, Kiefer Sutherland, uh, Jason Patrick. Yeah. Yeah. And it was so bad. And I was sitting there, I was going, why is this so bad? And then I realized it's because none of those guys felt like they needed each other Mm. on stage because they were all so big in their own right. You mean as actors? Yeah. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, they think they don't need each other. Uh-huh. And it, it, I, I, I had to get up and leave. Uh-huh. It, I mean, at intermission, I was like, bye. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> well, I, I didn't feel that in this one. I felt they all were really happy to be there, and they worked you know, really well That's together. Awesome. So let's talk about what Cecilia wanted to hear about, the Go-Go's musical. Yeah. yeah, Head Over Heels. I was there the day it opened. I didn't go to opening night, but July 26th it opened, so that was when we arrived in New York, and I went on Saturday matinee. It got kind of mixed reviews, but the New York Times hated it, so basically it was considered you know, getting bad reviews. Right. So I had no expectations going in. I wanted to see it because I like the Go-Go's, and plus a friend of mine wrote the book for it, and so I said, I'm going to come and see it, and he was actually there. He lives in Baltimore, but he was actually there. So I had low expectations, and as a result, I had a great time. I mean, it's a weird concept because they take sort of a 16th century poetic farce and then put go-go music in it. But the go-go musics are, you know, I'm head over heels over you, mad about you. I mean, they're all kind of love songy things, so you can kind of plug it in however you want. I had a good time. Again, there's mistaken identities. There's this a king and a queen, and the princess is in love with a shepherd, so we can't have that. And they go on a trip. Anybody in love with a tree? No trees. No, there were no. trees, but, you know, they stayed inanimate. I see. There's a transgender, not a muse, uh, an oracle, and she's really very funny. She's from the drag race show, Peppermint. So she comes out and she makes all these proclamations and she tells him that he needs to become an Amazon woman in order to go with them. 
Yeah, I know, weird with go-go music. So he puts on this wig, and he travels with them, and then the king, who can't stand him as a shepherd, falls in love with him as her, because it's an Amazon woman, as does the queen. So now the parents, who were against the marriage, are both in love with the guy that the daughter wanted to marry. So that's the complication with go-go that music. That does sound farcical. Yeah, it's very farcical. And so it was. I thought it was a hoot. You know, I mean, I thought it was really very funny. I asked Jim Magruder, who is the, the person who wrote the book, like, who came up with this concept? It actually wasn't his. It was somebody else's. And then mm. he left the production, and they brought him in to write it because he is friends with Michael Mayer, who, mm. who did Spring Awakening, who was the director. And so that's kind of how it evolved. But I would recommend anybody see it. You'll have a good time. The audience went nuts. Of all the shows we saw, audience was hooting and hollering. So those that do go to see it are very enthusiastic about it. Well, Cecilia, let's get back to you. You are an award-winning actress and director. As I mentioned, you're from Memphis, Tennessee. What, were you born in Memphis? No, I was actually born in Mississippi. And I have lived in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee. You are um, a Southern belle. I'm, a, I'm, wow. I'm as Southern as you get. But no, I didn't really live in Mississippi very long. I, I basically grew up, my childhood was really in Georgia, right out of Atlanta. And then lived in Knoxville for mm. a little while. And, um, other side of the state. Other side of the state and landed in Memphis at 15. Well, you, you hold numerous local, regional, and national theater awards. You've worked all over the Mid-South. You've won multiple Ostrander awards. Tell me about an Ostrander award. The Ostranders are the the Memphis version of the Jeffs. Jeff Awards, yeah. like we have here in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. And, and Memphis has... People are surprised at the theater community there and the quality of theater. There's a lot of it. There's a, a, a theater district that continues to grow and grow and grow and a lot of really good stuff. I mean, it's very high quality uh, theater. When you think of regional theater towns in America, Memphis doesn't come right well, off the tip of your yeah, tongue. Yeah, that's because music it? is what comes first. And so, yeah. You know, yeah. same thing with Nashville. You think music. But it's great for us because, let me tell you, we got some really good people in those orchestra pits. Oh, you're right. You're yeah, right. for uh-huh. sure. Yeah, they can bang I didn't it out. Even, I didn't even mm-hmm. realize that. Oh, yeah. You most recently won awards as Best Director for Young Frankenstein and The Addams Family. Yeah. You uh, hold uh, numerous Ostrander awards for acting, including Best Leading Actress in a Musical for Nonsense. I love Nonsense. Oh, yeah. you'd be great in that, yeah. <laughs> and speaking of the Jeffs, you won a Jeff Award for Best Supporting yeah. Actress in a play called Bihalia, Mississippi. Now, we've talked about Bihalia on this program before, Frank. Uh-huh. And I, I would say it's one of the finer evenings in the theater that I've been mm. to at least in a decade. Beautiful play. And Cecilia was remarkable in it. Congratulations on that yeah. performance, Thank you. Yeah. It was a, a real highlight of my career. And, you know, winning a Jeff was being nominated. I, I thought I was going to lose my mind. because I, I actually <laughs> got nominated for, I've done two shows in Chicago. I got nominated for a Jeff for both of them. But I did not win for the first one. But I was nominated. Uh-huh. And then when I won for Bahalia, I was I, c- I couldn't even believe it. You know, oh, you can't wonderful. be on this show unless you've won at least the equivalent <laughs> yeah. of a Joseph Jefferson right. Award. Yes. <laughs> that's, our, that's our bar. Well, it's Oscars or Jefferson Award. Or a Tony. That's I mean, I suppose Tony, if you've yeah. won a Tony Award or a MacArthur Genius Grant or something like that, you <laughs> yeah. can also be on the show. You know, it's interesting because I'm known as a director. I do all the big, huge, splashy musicals, the musical extravaganzas. In Memphis. In Memphis. Uh-huh. And that's just kind of what I'm known for. I mean, I do I direct straight plays as well, but I'm kind of your go-to big, splashy musical girl. And so when I get to do a show, well, as an actress, uh, which I, I really don't act much in Memphis anymore at all, and when I get to do a show like Bahalia or Cicada, where you get to really dig deep, it, it's just so 180 from what, mm-hmm. I, what I normally do. And it's so pleasant to be able to dig in and, and do that work. And let somebody else worry about the headaches that a director worries Absolutely. about. Just have to zero in on your part. <laughs> you mentioned Cicada. You were also nominated for a Joseph Jefferson Award for that. And that was written by your friend Jerry Dye. That's correct. And I, I'm sorry, I never did get to see that play. It, it was lovely. It was really lovely. It was Route 66 mm-hmm. was the producing company. Mm-hmm. It was at the, um, the Greenhouse. It was directed by Erica Wise. Mm. That's a uh, theater center on Clark 
Correct. Right in the middle of town. About three or four yeah, spaces. Right down yeah. the street from Victory Gardens. Yeah. It was a great cast. Like, my scene partner, Lenora, was married to a character named Preacher, who was played by Bob Ruler from The Steppenwolf oh, yeah, Company. Yeah. So he was my scene partner for everything nice. that Fantastic. I did. And um, it was a great cast. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. You mentioned the places where you were born and where you kind of grew up and were raised. How did you find this path to the theater, to performing arts? Did you always want to be an actress? Is this something that happened by accident, or was there a plan in place? It happened for me when I was 15 years old, and we had moved to Memphis. And I was in this new school, didn't know anybody, and someone just encouraged me to audition. They were doing Oliver. I'd never, Mm. I didn't even know how that all worked. I mean, I had seen (laughs) plays, growing up, but you know, I grew up in very rural uh, Georgia, so I wasn't seeing a lot of plays. When we went to Knoxville, I got to see The Emperor's New Clothes at oh, uh, the Carousel Theater at UT Knoxville, <laughs> and I was just mesmerized by mm-hmm. that. I met the director of that much later in a totally different situation, I was like, oh my God, you're the person <laughs> who changed my life. So I was like, ooh, I'm really interested in that, but I had no outlet to do it. And then we moved to Memphis, and I was lucky to be at a school that had a, a huge and very active drama program. Nice. So I was I got involved there. My very first show was Oliver. Okay. Yeah. Who did you Who did you play? I played about a million people. I was an ensemble person. I was played the doctor with the ace bandages around my boobs and everything to make me look like a guy. <laughs> I mean, was, I fell off the stage <laughs> twice. Oh no. And thankfully, it was in dress, but it was. First dress, second dress. I fell off the stage at the same moment <laughs> twice. Bo- both in dress rehearsals. Yeah. Did the director yell, keep it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe if we get some. We love it. Maybe you get a laugh or two. I can't even remember what all I played. Oliver's one of my favorite musicals, Lionel mm. Bart. Well, that was my first musical theater experience. And y- y- you were bitten. I was, that was it. I was done. Plus, you met people. That's when I used to coach high school drama. It was one of the wonderful things. Those kids got to be mm-hmm. friends. All of a sudden, you had a whole group of friends. You have this whole new group of friends. And so I was acclimated. I had my buddies. But it was just this. It's like I was given this rose-colored pair of glasses. Uh-huh. Everything just kind of changed. And then what I love about theater is that you're constantly learning things that you don't even realize you're learning. And I have such a love of research. As a director, I, I, can, I can just drown in it. I'm sure one day the, the feds are going to come and get me because they're going to see all these Nazi links on my phone from when I was, um, my, my computer when I was directing the producers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to look that stuff up. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm about to direct 1776. Oh, I could drown for a year in that research. Sure. That'll balance out the mm-hmm. Nazis. So thank goodness I have a, a, a really strong dramaturg for that. Did you um, say that would balance out the Nazis? Yeah, they'll find all this Nazi stuff. They'll find all this George Washington and <laughs> Hamilton and stuff. it's a wash. Yeah, it is, yeah. She's good. It's a wash. <laughs> I wanted to mention, we have a mutual friend named Chris McHugh. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the greenhouse, mm-hmm. I need to give her show a plug. She's coming to town. She's got a one-woman show. She's doing it on August 30th yes. at 8 p.m. I don't know if there are really any tickets left, but I, yeah. I, I told her I would give a plug on, on the air. We wanted to have her on, but she's only in town a short period of time, so Could, couldn't it Couldn't manage have, it. Yeah. just didn't really work with our timing. She's doing a one-woman show called Parents Must Be Dead. <laughs> when her parents died within three years of each other, she thought she had weathered this milestone life passage as an adult with some measure of ease and grace. Well, little did she know that the death of parents comes in many forms, and with many reverberations. Mm -hmm. Some of them seismic in her solo show, Chris McHugh explores this landscape that all of us will eventually navigate with a raw humor and tender vulnerability. Now you have tickets, right, Frank? Yes. A portrait of grace and a quest for freedom to find oneself in the light during the darkest of times. Wow. Pretty heady stuff. Yeah, yeah. Go see Christine McHugh's solo show, Parents Must Be Dead, in this beautifully articulated show. She takes us by the hand to explore how love expresses itself through parents and partners, siblings and flight attendants, and if you're really lucky, a stranger who shows up at your door with two suitcases and never leaves your love. (laughs) (laughs) 
Sounds wonderful. Yeah. It's at the Greenhouse on Clark. Correct. It's August 30th. So if you have any interest in that, listeners, look it up online, the Greenhouse Theater Center. Parents must be dead. So it's a great little space. Oh, yeah. The Greenhouse. Now, Cicada and this role that you played in Bihalia, Mississippi... These roles were written with you specifically in mind. Is that, that right? Crazy? Yeah. Is that, mm-hmm. is that, does that a lot of pressure on you? Did you find that to be, well, you have to live up to the playwright's expectations, or did it become a more collaborative process? I didn't think about it because neither of the playwrights really told me that they had written it for me until I was so deep in the process. But they fit so well with you, right? They yeah. sat very nicely with yeah. your well, what was, personality. What was great... <laughs> not for them, but is being in the room. And once I get that dialogue, because I am these people, I, I grew up with these people. These were my, these were my family. These are my friends. I know all these Southern country ass people. Can I say that? Mm-hmm. I know those people. I've been those people, I guess. But what's interesting is I would get in rehearsal and I would say, not quite the, the words that they had written there. <laughs> I see. But they would like, what I was saying better ah. because it was just more true to talk. the Yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes it would, I would ask them, you know, do you mind if I change this and say this? And they never cared. They mm-hmm. always let me go with it, but it was kind of funny. Were they both Southern writers? Yes. They okay. Were, so, both from Memphis. Okay. So they knew yeah. that. Well, Jerry, Jerry well. grew up in Amory, Mississippi, Okay, but lived in Memphis a very long time. Okay. And then Evan Linder is also from Memphis. So they're okay. either, you know, they're both. So like, they knew the Southern culture yeah, pretty well, too. It's crazy that people come out of Memphis. A lot of, we lose a lot of actors regularly because it's a wonderful pool down there. There's a lot of talent and, and the quality of theater is high, but we're constantly losing people to Chicago and New York. You know, mm. it happens. Mm. Sure. There, there are two that we lost to Chicago. So our loss, your gain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How did Memphis develop such a rich and expansive theater scene? I know that the Orpheum there mm-hmm. has been the big roadhouse right. for many, many years. Mm-hmm. I played Phantom of the Opera there one winter for six or seven weeks. Did you play weeks. the Phantom? I did not. <laughs> okay. My friend did, but I, I was oh. the production stage manager. Ha. I'm always curious, where does the money come from to stage these giant musicals that you do is there a population there that gives to the arts regularly and generously yes absolutely and of course the tennessee arts commission yes there are so many organizations who support theater and just subscriber bases i work a lot at theater memphis i mean i've worked at every theater in town but most of my big splashy musicals are at theater memphis it's interesting because they have a great story. The, the executive producer who's there now came in a few years ago, and they were just, oh, they were so much in debt, like a couple million dollars. It was bad. And she came in, and that was the first season that I worked there because she was like, okay, we're going to turn this around, and we're gonna, the only way we turn it around is with quality. We have to make people want to come here. And I had been working mostly in another theater. I'd done like nine seasons over there. So they enticed me to come in that first season that she was there. And she just started hiring really quality directors. And it has changed. And they are, they have so much money now. All their bills are paid. People ask me all the time, especially after Adam's family, they were like, what was the budget? For that show. Yeah, I'm curious. What are the budgets for those I ne- shows? I have no idea. I ne- oh, you don't I ask. never know. I never know. Mm. All I know is when my technical director says, mm, no, we're probably not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Which they've said to me twice in, uh-huh. in 11 years. Total. Wow. Yes. Wow. So you've gotten everything pretty much you've asked for. Pretty much. Oh. That staff is tremendous. I've worked in a lot of theaters, and they are just as professional as it gets and just turn out the most incredible scenery. It, just, it blows my mind the work that these people are doing. And Great. it's such a pleasure to be able to go in and realize your vision. Mm-hmm. Because, have y'all directed before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it sucks mm-hmm. when you're in a place that you are unable to realize your vision mm-hmm. simply because of the technical aspect. You have to compromise things, which mm-hmm. isn't quite what you wanted. Yeah, and it's fun to do that and to scale down and everything. But when you have something like the producer, 
Monsters, you know, Frankenstein, the Bye Bye Birdie. I mean, just all these big musicals. When you really get to invest in them and see all that lavish stuff happening, these scene changes, it's it's well, so people love satisfying. that. That's why they come to see shows Absolutely. like that. Yeah, and I'm all about the transitions. Mm. I'm all about transitions between scenes. Oh yeah. One of the major jobs of a director on a musical. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. How do you get from A to B? Exactly. Right. And make it interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and keep it moving. Yes. And mm-hmm. I'm one of these. I want the audience to always see the transitions. So it's a lot of flying scenery. And I mean, just running crews that are just... And music underneath and that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. They are just tremendous. Right. We may have to take a road trip, Frank. I think so. Uh, yeah. How far is the drive to Memphis? It's eight hours. It is exactly eight hours. We've driven it a thousand times. Or we could take it's the we could take the train to the New train. Orleans. Yeah. yeah. City of New City Orleans. City of New Orleans yeah. train. Stop mm-hmm. off at Memphis. Uh-huh. You have such a beautiful accent. It's a joy to listen to it. Can I tell you an interesting story that about my accent that ties into a dialect coach here in Chicago? Mm-hmm. We we don't do interesting stories yeah, on this program. Not at all. <laughs> we'll <laughs> make an exception well, this time. Well, of course, yeah. Cecilia, <laughs> by so all means. This is when I was doing Cicada. I was the only Southerner. And the dialect coach... Um, the the play was all Southern characters, yes. so you were the only original Southerner. Yes. Okay. It's Ava Brenneman, who is the most delightful human. She's a dialect coach uh, here in Chicago, yes, has been yes. for years and uh-huh. years. Okay. The, the, the premiered coach in well, Chicago, Well, I'm about to probably. tell you how amazing she truly is. So we're in rehearsal. We did lots and lots of table work before we ever got on our feet. And, of course, every night she would hand out notes to people, and I never got any <laughs> notes from her <laughs> because, hello. Yeah. <laughs> the main character... In Cicada, her name is Lily. Lil, Lily. I pronounce it with a really hard L in the back of my throat, that second L. And I got a, a note one night from her. And she said, you know, see me about your pronunciation of the word Lily. So I went and she said, the way you're pronouncing Lily is not Mississippi. What you're saying is North Georgia. Oh, wow. And I just sat there and I, I couldn't believe it because my childhood, I was raised in North Georgia. <laughs> she didn't say Georgia. She said North Georgia. Wow. That's how good this... She could this, pinpoint it. Oh, my gosh. Wow. It blew my mind. That's how tremendous this woman is. She and is. were you able to hear a difference then when she went to the Mississippi one? Yes. Okay. Yes. And so it was, it's all about picking up my lazy tongue because, you know, we have lazy tongues mm-hmm. in the South. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But a different kind of lazy and a lazy that actually is very appealing to the ear in some fashion. Mm-hmm. My ex-mother-in-law, she was one of those who didn't pronounce her words. Would you move that chair? Chair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Having a mint julep on yeah. the veranda. I'm not quite that. I'm just... I'm just <laughs> I'm just country, country ass Southern. <laughs> Cecilia, longtime listeners of this show will know that I have a, well, I think it's healthy, but maybe it's an unnatural fear of sharks. <laughs> it, it, it's astoundingly unnatural. I, I believe that there are sharks in Lake Michigan, for instance. Okay. Anything, you think any, there's sharks any, in like your bathtub? Deep water. No, I can see the bottom of the bathtub. Oh, okay. If I can't see the bottom, then, then I'm convinced that there's probably something or was something there. But I, I have to report on the most recent shark story. The trio of thieves stole a live shark from a Texas aquarium. <laughs> By disguising it as a baby and smuggling it out inside an infant carriage. Please. This is somewhere in San Antonio, I think. And what uh, did they do with it? And well, why did they want question. it? <laughs> the Saturday afternoon heist was so bizarre, local police at first thought that the whole thing sounded extremely fishy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we thought it was a kind of a hoax, being that it was Shark Week last week, said the Leon Valley police chief. The bandits, two men and a woman, swiped a one and a half foot predator from an open tank. So that's not very big, but it's still, mm-hmm. it's still a shark and it'll take your finger off mm-hmm. in a second. Uh, stole it from an open tank at the San Antonio Aquarium around 3 p.m. with one guy grabbing its tail while the other two wrapped it in a wet blanket. This is the craziest story in the world. Really? Yeah. They then placed the shark baby (laughs) in a stroller and wheeled the dripping bundle out of the aquatic museum undetected before hopping in a maroon truck. 
This is all captured on cameras, by the way. Oh, wow. I've seen the video of it. <laughs> uh, what, what they thought they were doing, I have no idea. The aquarium staff didn't notice their giant fish was gone for at least another 45 minutes. Horn sharks, that's what it was. It was called a horn shark, can survive outside of water for two to three hours. We'll be surprised if the shark survives, local mm-hmm. fish experts told the news media. We sure hope it does, but being outside of that environment that it's made to be in, warm water, salt water, there's a good chance that it won't make it. Well, this is all over the news. Update. The shark stolen from the San Antonio Aquarium after crooks wheeled it out in a stroller has been found and is in good condition and back at the aquarium. (laughs) That is insane. I don't know what's happened to the people who stole it. They're, they're probably going into therapy of yeah, some really. sort. Uh, they got their fingers bit off and they decided <laughs> to take it back. Why Thief. would you want one? To eat, maybe. I've had shark meat, but not out of an aquarium. A horn shark? A one and a half foot I have no idea what kind of shark, shark it was. It was just on the menu. Oh, and right. obviously this is well planned. Yeah, I'm wondering if someone just dared them to do it. You know? Could be. I would steal a shark and then hide it in your house. You would, you would, I would do, that. do that. Yes, I, 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 I absolutely and I could believe get Cecilia that you to would. Help me, I bet. I absolutely <laughs> believe that you would. I understand that in Memphis, your porch is sort of a I don't know Bloomsbury Group gathering place for artists and creative types. Is that true? Tell it, us a little bit about this. I'm glad you asked me about my porch. It really is. It's the strangest thing. I have a great porch. You know, we love our porches in the South. And I am on my porch. If I'm at home, 365, I'm there. Mm-hmm. I've got fans in the summer. I've got a heater hung above me in the winter. I have a big chest of drawers with blankets for people who come over. Somehow, it has just become a gathering place. And every single day of my life, someone is on that porch with me. There's not a day that goes by that no one is there. Do they just stop by and go, hey, Cecilia? Yeah, they just stop by or they'll call and go, hey, have you eaten? What are you doing? Can I bring some takeout? And sometimes there will be, you know, a comfortable number on my porch is about eight. And there are very often, at least that many, there, there have been 20 or 30 for occasions, Easter brunch or something like that. Everybody brings something yeah there is so much there's so much theater (laughs) going on i mean that's where you know things are are conception is there and there there's people who are there from the opera there are people who are there from the ballet there's uh, theater people i mean it's just kind of crazy it's a gathering place. It's, it's like the a, Algonquin it's circle like a, of Memphis. <laughs> or like we, like we would say in the South, it's, it's a tonk. A tonk? <laughs> a tonk. tonk. You know, like a honky-tonk. Oh, oh, I see. So it's sure. like, I, I feel like my porch is a tonk. Is there a, is there a nickname for your porch, or is it just Cecilia's it's porch? The, it's just the porch. The porch. Uh-huh. The porch. We definitely need to take a road yeah, trip, we do. Frank. We do. And anywhere I go, like if I'm at a show, if I'm going to see a show, of course, everywhere I go, I know people, and they're like, was the porch open when you get home? <laughs> and I have my one seat on the porch. That's um, your spot. It is my throne. It uh-huh. is my spot. You're allowed to sit in it if I'm in the kitchen or in the house. But the minute I walk out, they're out of it. Everyone knows that is my chair. No one sits in my chair. It's a great, comfortable place to be. Sounds like it must be relatively large if you're going to have 25 people. It's not. Well, it is. They kind of spill out on the sidewalk. Uh. But I'm also one of those people. I got this from my southern grandmother. When I'm ready to go to bed, I don't care who's there. I'm like, okay, love you. Get out. Mm-hmm. Going to bed. Good for you. And they get up and they leave. Um, how close is it to the houses next door? How are the neighbors with this? Well, my neighbor to the right has, is hard of hearing, has hearing oh, aids. Oh, that's Perfect. On the far side. Oh, yeah, ideal. And then my neighbor to the left, is he's never there. Oh. And he rides a motorcycle and wakes people up with it. So, <laughs> so he has nothing to say. <laughs> then we have people across the street... I look at this hillside. On top of that hillside is the backyard of this wonderful couple, uh, Jim and Brantley. And they are big party people, too. And they've got a beautiful pool and all that. And there have been times when we have sing-alongs from my porch. <laughs> like They were singing um, West Side Story one night. And we heard them in the distance. And we would. it became a call and response. <laughs> 
<laughs> and so now, anytime they've got a group party going and they we've got a group, we end up in some, you know, we've done Greece. We've done, <laughs> it's pretty fun. Oh, yeah, that sounds I can, great. I can hear them doing the quintet from West Side Story. The Jets are going to have their way. The Sharks are going to have their way. Fantastic. Yeah. I can't wait. So when you have people over, if people just drop in, do you, have a, are do you, you have a yeah. supply of beverages and, and you, food items for people, or do you, do you send them out to the store to bring things in? Well, they're on their own for food. I mean, I keep snacks, but no, I'm, there's no way I can keep up. And plus, there's theater people and dancers, and I can't keep them loaded up in alcohol. There's no way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, throw a few, throw a few <laughs> musicians in there, and then yeah. you're really in trouble. Right, and so I have... I always have vodka because that is my drink of choice. I have a vodka martini every day of my life. Uh-huh. So lots of people every now and then will show up and bring me a, a gift of vodka. So, And then people come and they bring beer and they leave it. And uh-huh. I, every time somebody leaves something, like I've got a full bar of things that people just left. Uh-huh. And, and I, they're like, well, I'll just leave it. I'll, I'll get into it next time I'm here. I'm like, I'm not making any guarantees it's going to be here. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's a steady train of people. Yeah. Right it's not like but, they put their name on the label and say, right. this, this, yeah. this, is, this is Jim's rye right. or something. <laughs> no, That's no, not happening. Either, no, once either. they bring it, it's open for whoever. Yeah. Right. But problems get solved on my porch. There's porch therapy. Hmm. Um, there, there's lots, lots of porch therapy. And I, I work with a lot of young people as a director, and they kind of, you know, come to me for just advice on things and auditions and just things like that. Yeah. So it, it, it's really nice. There's lots of things that happen on that porch. And, of course, we talk about politics a lot. Sure. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> I bet that gets heated sometimes. We're... We we just are all mad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're yeah. all on the yeah. same side. Yeah. Yeah. We're just mad about yeah. it all. There's yeah. lots to be mad about uh, nowadays. There's lots to be mad about. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds absolutely fantastic, and I look forward to a day when I can get down there and spend I some told, time with you and your friends. Oh, Betsy, y'all should come down sometime. If you'd like to support Booth One in bringing you the best in lively conversation about the arts and fascinating guests like Cecilia Wingate here, you can go to our website at booth-one.com that's booth with a dash and the O-N-E dot com and click on the donate button it's quick it's easy and it's fully tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity any contribution would be greatly appreciated and Frank I need to tell our listeners and remind them, actually, that our last guest on the show, Mr. Rick Kogan, yes. has offered the generous, generous gesture of if you donate $100 or more to our podcast website, yeah. he will provide you with a signed, autographed book of his true crime story, Everybody Pays. Right, which I'm now reading. It's wonderful. Co-written with Maurice Posley. Correct. And, and you're reading it now. I am reading it now. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, read. Yeah. You will enjoy this book immensely and whip right through it, listeners. So uh, remember, Rick Hogan's offer a uh, hundred dollars or more to your favorite podcast, Booth One. Yeah, and uh, we'll send you a free book. Yeah. We were talking before we started recording, Cecilia. You were once with a rock band. Oh, wow. Isn't that funny? <laughs> were, were, you, were you the lead singer of the rock band? Well, it, it, there were four women who fronted it. What was it called? The Buffons. <laughs> I love it. And we had big hair. Well, no, no doubt, of yeah, course. Big, huge hair and flashy costumes. And I actually started the Buffons. It's still, the Buffons still exist. I started it back in 89 when a friend of mine who was uh, the artistic director at Topeka Civic Theater, I think it was. Okay. His name was Terrence McCurs. We met at the Southeastern Theater Conference, which is this huge, it's the largest theater conference in the world. Mm-hmm. And just became fast friends. And he had come to visit me and learned that I was surrounded by lots of people who could really sing. He said, you know, you should, you should do something with them. Oh, okay. And he left and he went back to Kansas. And then he called me and he said... I was cleaning out my sister's house the other day, and I found all these old girl group 45s. And maybe that's what you should do. And I thought, okay. Well, so I kind of thought about it for about a year. (laughs) And 
pulled it together just kind of as a little fundraiser for one of the theaters that I was working at. And people just fell in love with it. So that's how it started. But I was with that band for 21 years. We went through a lot, you know, we morphed. And uh, the last group, uh, me and the three, we were tight. We sounded great. They, they were wonderful singers. I was thrilled to share the stage with them every night. Our band was tight. We were all, we went all over the country. And that was for 21 years oh, wow. I did that. Did you ever play Chicago? Yes. Where did, did you play? It was a hotel. It was a corporate gig. I see. Yeah, but it was it was downtown. Yeah, we played Chicago, Miami, Atlanta, San Diego, Minneapolis, New York. Uh, I mean, we were, we were everywhere. And what songs would you do? Give us give us an idea of the repertoire. Well, when we started, it would be you know maybe the Crystals or the Shangri Las. My boyfriend's back. You know, all that stuff to do Ron Ron. Yeah. But then it morphed into more. By the time I left the band, after 21 years, we were doing everything from... It was mostly R&B, a lot of Aretha Franklin, that sort of thing. So not just girl groups anymore. Not just girl groups anymore. Uh And by the time I left, I mean, we were doing... ACDC. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Hair, wow. Yeah, we did Paradise by the Dashboard Lights. Ah. We, you know, it was now, did you do those in the style of girl groups? Or did you kind of rock it up? We rocked it out. Ah. We would change costumes. We became more hip as, okay. as the evening went on. But yeah, that was 21 years. Wow. Any we plans were. for a reunion? You know, people ask that all the time in Memphis. I think it'd be a huge fundraiser. Like if somebody else needs funds. to plan that. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Just call me and tell me where to be. Yeah, there, you, there go. you go. I may, I may yeah. be able to crack out yeah. two or three notes at this yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> Often on our program, Cecilia, we play a little parlor game, which might actually be something you could do on your porch sometime. Yeah. We Thank play a little you. parlor game called Chat Pack. It's just random questions. These were chosen by our producer. I don't really know what they are. And we all play together. And again, I don't know what these are. Would you be game for trying this? Absolutely. All right, I'm going to let you choose one. Oh, okay. And if you would read that to us, we'll all play. If you were making a list of the five things and people that make you happiest, not people, Five things, not people, that make you happiest in your life. What five things would you write down? God, five. Well, let's make it simpler. Let's say three. Okay. <laughs> All right, three things that make you happiest. What would those be? Cannot be people. Well, I just went to New York, so seeing Broadway shows or seeing shows makes me happy. That's, I'll throw that one out for number one. Mm-hmm. Flowers make me happy. I really enjoy flowers. You have a big garden, do you? I have a garden. Yes. On the other side of the house from the porch? It's actually right out from my porch. I sit on my throne and I look at my... Oh, they're perfect. Yeah, ideal. Mm -hmm. Gary, you're up. Dogs. Hmm. Oh, dogs. They're not people, um, so I can use dogs, right? Doesn't say non... Doesn't say it has to be non-living. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dogs make me happy. All right, I would say traveling. Yes. I mean, I see people, but... Just traveling. That's (laughs) great. (laughs) It's often nice to travel without people, too. It's a little hard, but, you know, (laughs) It's difficult. You need need their support, but, yeah. yeah. I I become very happy when I feel like I have a job well done. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That makes me happy. Cooking. Yes, Mm. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I'll say eating. (laughs) (laughs) You cook it, I'll eat it. Fantastic, (laughs) fantastic. I can't name one that's already been named. Yeah, sure, you can, you can. If it makes you happy. It's dogs. Dogs. Oh, okay. yeah. Awesome. I don't own one. I own a cat uh, because I'm just in and out, and I, I just feel Cats like... Cats are I, more I, easier to take I care of. I wouldn't be yeah. the best dog parent, but that's one of the things that I'm so happy to be in Chicago for two and a half weeks with my friends Jerry and Scott is because I'm so in love with their dog, Emmett. Uh. Emmett, who was rescued from Kentucky, and he kind of looks like it. He has no teeth. <laughs> he has, he no, has teeth. no teeth. His teeth are all cracked out and little. And he's just, oh, my God bless him. You wow. really are from Kentucky, buddy. <laughs> oh. Don't tell me about from Kentucky. I no, 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 no. We're not that big in Kentucky. I would say I'm going to steal something from you, Frank. I would say watching theater. 
yeah. particularly musicals. And it doesn't matter if it's New York or Chicago or Memphis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just enjoy being in a room with a bunch of people watching something yeah. on stage. Yeah. Yeah. I would say laughing, too. Not taking life seriously and seeing the absurd and everything. Unless one becomes a tree, then I draw the line. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's play one more, shall we? Let's do it. All right. If, like the newspaper or milk, you could have anything of your choice uh, delivered to your doorstep every morning, what particular item would you want that to be? Now, does that include people? <laughs> they don't say no people. It does say I can item. think of a couple I'd like delivered to my door every day. It, it does say item. Well, I guess I you could know. call them an item. Yeah. 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 I'm trying to think of what I would go buy on a kind of a daily basis that it would be delivered unless they're being more fanciful. I, I think you're overanalyzing, Like a million dollars Frank. or something. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're overanalyzing. It can be anything. It can be fanciful. Okay. But I, I don't think a million dollars every morning is really a realistic... No, how about a couple hundred dollars every morning? <laughs> money. Money. I've got money. You I'd would like, like money delivered to your home. I would like money delivered home. to my home every day in handfuls. That'd be swell. Yeah, that'd be great. Then I'll just go and buy whatever I want and I don't have to deliver it. I have a friend who gets liquor and cigarettes delivered to his door. Ah. Talk about lazy. Yeah, really. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I may want to hang out with him. Um, <laughs> you would. You would. I think if I could just have a lovely magazine, cooking magazine, delivered to me every morning, one on gardening or cooking, I think I would enjoy that because I would have a brand new magazine to enjoy my morning with it on the porch on the porch porch. Mm -hmm. nice i'm not a big breakfast eater mostly because i never wake up in time to fix myself a decent (laughs) breakfast i always stay in bed till the very last minute so maybe a good decent breakfast every morning doesn't have to be bacon and eggs it could be some something different all the time but already made for me ready to sit down and eat it it could even be just a smoothie I think that would be great to right. have at my doorstep every morning. So with your smoothie and her magazines and my money, we got it covered. Yeah. We are, we are all set. <laughs> we are set. <laughs> Try to stop us. Yeah. All, all we need is a driver. <laughs> yeah. Cecilia, we finish our podcast every week with a segment we call The Kiss of Death. Now, don't get nervous. Okay. <laughs> this is really just a celebration of someone who has recently passed. And they could be famous, not famous. They could be in the entertainment industry or any other industry, writers, manufacturers, diplomats, all Mm -hmm. kinds of things. You, Frank, like I, am a big fan of the movies. Yep. Are you a big movie fan as well, Cecilia? I am. I just don't get to see many. Have you ever wanted to live in a movie set a film that you absolutely love, that you really, really love to live there? Gone with the Wind, would you like to have lived in, the, in the South, in the pre-war South, mm-hmm. for instance? Well, Cecilia? I've seen a, a scenic design on stage that I would have loved to have lived in. Oh, oh yeah. what was that? Other Desert Cities. Oh, I love that show. Oh, yeah. Beautiful like, set. It was a beautiful right, set. Yeah. I was like, I want to live there. Uh-huh. <laughs> it takes place in Arizona, right? Is that No, Palm Springs. Palm Springs. Yeah, yeah. Desert, the Palm Desert or something. Yeah, around that area. Mm. Because it says Palm Springs this way, Other Desert Cities that way is the street sign. And so that's where the title comes from. Well, I know a lot of people who would like to inhabit certain places in movies. I visit places. I mean, I, I did the yeah. uh, Breaking Bad tour where you go by the house that oh, they use for the that's, exteriors. That's cool. We did a Hitchcock tour. We saw some of the, like the, in Bodega Bay, the schoolhouse and some of those. Yeah. So I like visiting yeah. outside the sets. I wouldn't necessarily want to live there. Well, when Kathy Kreiger left the American Diplomatic Service after 9-11, she wanted to make a symbolic stand for tolerance by investing in a Muslim country. Hang with me. This is going somewhere. (laughs) When she arrived in Morocco, the entrepreneur in her saw a great business opportunity. She found that Rick's Cafe, the cinematic gin joint from the 1942 film, did Uh not actually exist. Mm. So she opened 
Rick's Cafe ah. in 2004 in a converted old house in Casablanca's old city, and she ran the establishment for 14 years. Her Rick's Cafe became a destination much like your porch <laughs> for tourists and locals alike, an oasis of period authenticity with columned white arches framing the main dining room under a three-story canopy, hanging brass chandeliers, beaded lamps, palms swaying in the corners, and a baby grand piano tucked under an archway as if waiting for Dooley Williams Sam to return and play it just one more time mm-hmm. for old time's sake. On most nights, Miss Krieger, Madam Rick to her regulars, <laughs> could be found at the corner of the bar sipping water from a wine glass until about 11 p.m. when she would allow the bartender to pour her a Moroccan Val d'Argan Blanc, which I assume can be a white wine of mm-hmm. some sort, a Sounds Moroccan like white yeah. wine. Miss Krieger had a good-natured habit of relating her actions to scenes and famous lines from Casablanca. Returning to Casablanca from her last foreign trip to France, for example, in June, she always said, We'll always have Paris. Yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful line. Yeah, that's great. And finding investors for Rick's Cafe was a matter of rounding up the usual suspects. Oh. One of the great lines also from the movie. <laughs> uh, the restaurant and nightclub became so successful that it paid them generous dividends, her mm. investors. Miss Krieger said running Rick's was, quote, assisted living of the best kind. Oh. Do you ever want to run a restaurant, Cecilia? Ever want to have an establishment? Well, your porch is one, I guess. Is, you're, you're really the I proprietor really, there. Yeah, I really used to want to open a restaurant badly. And then I just got too old. And <laughs> I was like, <laughs> there's no way I have the energy to do that. It is a lot of work, mm-hmm. especially with your schedule. Yeah. Well, Kathy Krieger was in her late 50s when she founded this Rick's Cafe in Casablanca. And when asked if she planned to retire, she liked to quote Humphrey Bogart's character who said to Ingrid Bergman in the film, I'm going to die in Casablanca. It's a good place for it. (laughs) Kathleen Ann Krieger was born in Portland, Oregon. In June of 1946, after founding a travel agency, she joined the State Department, which posted her as a commercial attache to Casablanca, Morocco's business center and biggest city. Miss mm-hmm. Krieger said that Ricks had been good to her. Friends had commented on how much younger she looked than she had years earlier before she wow. founded the place. So wow, I guess yeah. maybe running an establishment like this keeps you young. I think the porch keeps you young, don't you? Happiness keeps Happiness, you young. Happiness, yeah. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Miss Krieger's Ricks Cafe hosted jazz nights and a program of arabesque music that was so popular the club's website streamed live performances. Mostly though she loved seeing people from many nationalities mingling in what she thought of as a sanctuary of tolerance. That's my board. A sanctuary of tolerance. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Which she felt the cinematic Rick's Cafe American represented. If I'm honest, I always thought I would find a man while following my dream, Ms. Krieger wrote in her memoir in 2012 about Rick's. That didn't happen, she said cheerfully. Instead, with Rick looking over my shoulder, I found myself. Ah. That's nice. Kathy Krieger, Madam Rick, at her Casablanca Cafe. She was 72. Wow. Are they continuing the cafe without her? I believe that they are. The investors would probably insist upon it. Oh, yeah, if they're making money, right. (laughs) And 72 is not really that old It is not. No, it's a shame. shame. I would love to go to Casablanca and hang out with Madam Krieger. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank our guest, Cecilia Wingate. Cecilia, you've been absolutely delightful today. Thank thank you for gracing us with your presence. I'm happy to be here. I've looked at some of your past episodes. You have really fancy people. So I feel fancy. Fancy today, thank you. You are just as fancy, but, but none of them have as sexy a voice as you do. Oh, right. So sweet, thank mm-hmm. you. Visit us at booth-one.com for prior episodes and more information about our program and your hosts. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski and Frank Taranjo saying so long and keep listening. Mm-hmm.